Bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Rollbar is real-time error monitoring, alerting, and analytics that helps you resolve production errors in minutes. And I talked with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, a trusted customer of Rollbar, and Paul says they don't deploy a service without installing Rollbar first. It's that crucial to them. We operate at serious scale, and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do, and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service, and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. All right, if you want to follow in Paul's footsteps and start deploying with confidence today, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. And now on to the show. Doesn't the sound of that music just make you want to kind of dance and have a party? <laughs> does me i'm excited for a js party that music always gets it going and we are excited to have everyone here with us again this week we have an awesome panel per the usual and joining me today is suze hinton hey suze hey it's great to be back for another episode excited to have you uh nick nisi is here what's up nick hoy hoy and last but certainly not least is divya hey divya what's up hey well today we thought we would start with what's new and what's noteworthy things going on around the JavaScript and web ecosystem. Some of these things might be new, some might just be noteworthy. Things that we thought might be interesting to talk about. And we thought we'd kick it off with what seems like to me is, I don't know, seemed like the coolest thing that I ran across recently, which is that the Can I Use team and the MDN, Mozilla Developer Network, I think MDN stands for, team are collaborating. So way back in the day, Can I Use started collecting compatibility data on which features can be is supported on which browsers. And then also Mozilla started collecting similar, but different, but similar, but different data on compatibility. And these were kind of efforts that were running alongside each other and really kind of duplicated efforts for a very long time. Well, they are announcing uh, Florian Scholz and Alexis Deveria from Mozilla wrote a blog post September 9th that Can I Use and MDM compatibility data are now going to be collaborated on. So they're no longer going to be completely separate ecosystems. They're not going to be merged and doing like the exact same data, but they're going to be kind of integrated, which seems like a big deal and really just a win for like working together on the web. And so this seems like a pretty cool thing to find out about. So anybody have additional contacts you'd like to add to this story? Of course, all links in the show notes for those who want to read the announcement from Mozilla's side, we'll link that up. But Can I Use has been going along for a long time, 10 years, which surprised me, made me feel a little bit old. Uh, like, <laughs> dang, I've been around all that time. And then MDN has been doing their effort for two years. And so it's nice to just see some collaboration happening. 
Yeah, I sort of instinctually reach for can I use all the time. And I usually expect it to have very specific data in there. And sometimes I forget that it's it doesn't have everything right. It's got mostly like high level browser APIs. And I think that being able to have like a single source of truth is actually really awesome. You can just look stuff up so quickly, especially when you're in the middle of a meeting and there's some kind of bike shedding going on about something, you can just fix it straight away. For sure. It seems like the the difference in the data in terms of context was, can I use, Sue's, like you said, it was kind of more high level, like here's a big picture feature and then how does it work in the browsers and you know all the compatibility. And the Mozilla folks were very, very more granular, like mm-hmm. very specific APIs and their compatibility. And so they've been kind of running alongside each other and some of the, there's overlap there, but there's not a one-to-one. And so they've always had these little bit different kind of angles because of their use cases. And so what's going to happen now is you can go to Can I Use and you can search their tables, but they're going to add the MDN data into the Can I Use website. Is that right? Yeah. So curious if this goes the other direction as well. So when you're using the MDM stuff and the MDN data, I think, surfaces itself in other tools, not just on the Mozilla Developer Network uh, website, which is finally Eclipse W3 Schools, I think, in most searches, <laughs> which, is, which is awesome because W3 Schools was like the dominant search results with the least useful, in my humble opinion, website. Now you don't have to type in like, you know, topic space MDN or MDN colon topic or something like that. Yeah, it's pretty nice. And I remember when MDN first launched, they even had like a specific goal of like, hey, let's replace W3 School. So there was like a hot linking campaign, like not hot linking, that's the wrong term, backlinking. Like go link to us from your blog, your developer blog, <laughs> um, in order to you know increase our page rank. And uh, we all like sheep uh, obliged you know, <laughs> to link to that website. And hey, it paid off for us sheeple. So that's a cool development. Uh, I think there'll be, one of the things that's happening is there's the can I use repo and then there's the MDN compat data repo. And they've all, like I said, been working side by side. Well, they're going to start to have collaboration across those. So I think people who are, uh, have been contributing to Can I Use are going to start doing the other side and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So it's data sharing. It's also just effort sharing, which hopefully will, I think, push the industry forward in a way that's you know, less effort than it has been so far. Yeah, I hope it'll lead to the development of more tools that can use that data. Absolutely. One of the things that I've thought of with Can I Use is how myopic I can be as an engineer because I've used the Can I Use website all the time. It's like ingrained. And I never once thought, just as a, probably everybody else thought this but me, like what if this was just data that I could integrate into a tool and access from another place? Like I'm just like, well, we got the website. Why would you want an, like an API or why would you want like the raw data? And then I started seeing what people were <laughs> started doing uh, with the raw data and with the compatibility tables as data versus as a website. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm kind of a short-sighted person because this is way better. Can you give an example? Oh, an example. So basically like in brow- like in editor compatibility information. So in VS Code um, or Sublime Text where they start to pull in oh, the cool. uh, compatibility right there in your editor versus saying, can I use this? Okay, can I use .com? And just going out and typing it in. Like you can get it right there in your editor. As one example, I think there are others that have crossed my mind where I was like, or crossed my radar, not my mind, where I was like, that's cool. I haven't necessarily used it myself, but there's so many things you can do once you have it as JSON or whatever. I use the, can I use Alfred workflow just because it's really nice to be able to just like 
as I'm typing something in VS Code, and then I can just do can I use. It still pulls you to the site yeah. to look for stats, but it's a better way than like going to your browser and then creating a tab and then mm-hmm. it's like multiple clicks versus just one very quick shortcut. Yeah, I can imagine being in Vim and being able to just like highlight a word and then hit like a, a macro or something and it just pops up the page. It would be just as convenient, which would be awesome. I actually didn't know that that was an Alfred workflow. Like today I learned that's actually kind of exciting. I might install that. Yeah, Alfred, like I think a lot of things I use Alfred for. I, I use Dash as well for like documentation lookup just because it's really fast and it's like that gives me an excuse to never ever have to go to like a website and a doc page ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the next bit of nerdy video game focused developer news, at long last, Mario has come to HTML. And this is an unofficial port of Mario Brothers game to HTML, really to JavaScript and HTML, to, to the canvas. So it's, it's definitely to HTML. But uh, this Nintendo did not sponsor this effort. And I bet if they found out about it, well, then maybe they would be nice about it. But they could definitely do a DMCA takedown if they wanted to, but very cool. Did y'all check that link that I put into the show notes and play a little bit of Mario right there in your browser? Still playing. I think it's interesting to look at the source code of a game with TypeScript. I think I'm used to seeing like websites or web apps written in TypeScript, but just looking at how it can be used, uh, you know, in order to create better stability and things like that in games is, I think is actually a really interesting angle. Anytime I look at game code, I think it's interesting because it's so different to the code that I'm used to writing from an application perspective. It gives me a little bit of imposter syndrome, like, am I even good enough to be reading this? But then I'm like, no, I can read this. So yeah, I guess I am. I can read it. I don't know if I can write it, but it's cool nonetheless. And definitely just a different style, like just different concerns that I'm not used to addressing in my day to day. I had trouble with this because actually like a lot of the initial programming that I did was related to games or it was related to something that basically had to always be performing in a loop. So even the embedded hardware is exactly the same. Like you actually set up, you have your setup and your update script, uh, sorry, functions, right? And so it was very difficult for me to cross into things like CRUD applications and even things like MVC because I was like, this is so completely different to what I'm used to. And I actually found the game programming more comforting for a while just because it was what Mm. I knew. So it's really interesting hearing that you see that the other way around, Jared. Yeah different foundations tend mm-hmm. to have different perspectives for sure. So one thing I said jokingly about this in ChangeLog News is we have seen Nintendo start to port their games, not port, it's the wrong term, create games based on their characters and their previous intellectual property to mobile platforms. So Dr. Mario World is on iOS, probably Android as well, as, and Mario Kart also is coming soon to mobile devices. And I jokingly said, well, maybe it's time, you know, here's Mario and HTML. Maybe it's time that they consider the web platform as their next platform because they move from their own devices now to mobile devices, somebody else's platform. But taking that joke kind of seriously, is there things holding the web back that would stop Nintendo from actually being able to, I mean, this is a simplified version of, of Mario World, of course, an 8-bit game from back in the 80s. We have seen some good mobile or web games out there and frameworks and whatnot to help create those kind of games. But what about the games at a level of polish that a Nintendo would you know, require? Would they ever, you think, consider the web as a potential platform? I think the, it, was, it was an interesting thing that happened like a couple of years ago with WebAssembly coming to the fore. Um, and one of the 
pivotal examples to show the strength of that platform on that was the idea of like porting a game that was built in Unity into WebAssembly without having to write additional code. Because a lot of the times when your application or when you have a game that's already written for a specific framework, you have to rewrite everything with it because it's a different paradigm and a different platform. And so that takes a lot of work. But then I think with WebAssembly, like basically the example of porting a game showed that it was possible to take existing an existing code base written in a completely different language and platform and then just port it over to the web and it runs like as quickly as it would in a native environment, which I think is really cool. And I, I know very little about the game industry, but from my understanding, it seems like the route that a lot of companies will take just if they wanted to port a game over to the web. Like obviously there's a lot of couple of edge cases that they might have to deal with here and there, but that's probably the fastest way to do it without having to completely rebuild a game from scratch for the web. It does seem like the the game industry is going in a direction that would align with this as well, with things like Google's Stadia, I think it's pronounced, mm-hmm. uh, where you don't actually own the console locally, but it's like a subscription, and then the console's running in the cloud somewhere. And there's there's talk about uh, what that might be like for the PlayStation 5, and I know Xbox has their own version of that, where basically you you play your games, and maybe you have a console locally, but you can play them on your phone, or on your iPad, or wherever. And maybe the web is just one more place that you can do that. And it's definitely catching up to be that kind of outlet, which would be really nice being able to not have to download an app and just stream a game locally. But I think the the big thing holding that back for like really big games uh, is probably just network latency at this point. So maybe that's where having like a, a PlayStation locally still and then just streaming to your phone um, fixes that for now. The other side of that equation is really the payment processing and the requirement of payment. You know, when you're shipping everything you have into the browser runtime, it's difficult to have secrets that, I mean, you can have, it's a cat and mouse game with web-based things. It's, it is with non-web-based things as well, but there's just less hiding with the web because so much it depends on the browser context, which is really in the hands of the user. Whereas your NES console it's a black box to the user. You have to like actually open it up to hack it. So perhaps Mario, the real Mario, not coming soon to HTML, but eh, time will tell. Time will tell. Let's move on to uh, Nick-related news because it's TypeScript-related <laughs> news. <laughs> Nick has become the embodiment of TypeScript on JS Party. Uh, congratulations, Nick. And this was a cool thing to see. So this happened just this week, is that Google has chimed in on TypeScript 3.5 and noteworthy to me because it's just interesting to see basically industry giants Microsoft and Google in the open source world working on this thing that's has so much interest from different parties and here they are providing Google style feedback to a Microsoft backed open source project that so many people are used so this was on GitHub issues and they said Evmar on GitHub. So we recently upgraded Google to use TypeScript 3.5. Here's some feedback on the upgrade. And then I like this part. For background, recall that Google is a monorepo of billions of lines of code. We use a single version of TypeScript and a single set of compiler flags across all teams and upgrade these simultaneously for everyone. So you can see the scale at which they're operating that there. And then they provide a whole bunch of things that I didn't read because it's TypeScript. I don't care. Just kidding, Nick. So maybe, Nick, you can flesh out some context here. Like, is this some good advice or these things that would only ever hit Google? I don't know how 
are you into this uh, list of recommendations? Yeah, I, I read read them, and it was cool. And I think the 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 big cool thing about this is is exactly what you just read, where Google is using a mono repo and everything is in there. So I can't say for sure because I don't work at Google, but I assume that the person or team tasked with upgrading to TypeScript 3.5 uh, had to go and fix all of the issues across billions of lines of code uh, that upgrading would would um, bring forth. And so uh, it was a big task. And that is kind of a unique insight that only a Google or a Facebook or, or some big company using a big mono repo for everything mm-hmm. can give you all at once. They can say, we upgraded to this version and the, this is specifically what broke. And uh, I did read the the comments and it more or less all kind of stemmed from the first one, which is kind of a breaking change that they had for generics, where if you don't specify what a generic value is before, it would just basically assign that to be an empty object. So that's what it would assume. And if you didn't explicitly say that this generic extends something else, then it would just extend an empty object. So things like the default functions that are available on all objects, like two string are always going to be available. But in 3.5, they changed that to instead implicitly be the unknown type, which can be anything still except really null or undefined is what what it said there. And so it kind of narrowed the type a little bit. And so things like expecting the two string function to be on anything is not necessarily true because it might be on null or undefined. That function would not be on null or undefined. And then it would throw an error. So it's kind of narrowing the type and that had some unintended consequences, which seemed to be most of what the feedback was about. The thing I really liked about it was that they they described the problems that they were having with some simple examples and some real world uh, examples, and they offered suggestions about what what the TypeScript team could do in the future to help mitigate this or ways that they could fix this. Or um, so so they came with solutions and not just problems. I like that you called that out because it was an incredibly diplomatic example of Mm -hmm. how to do open source. And I took a few notes just from that alone beyond just the technical content, which I also thought was like really well done. Mm -hmm. The theme of this new noteworthy is collaboration. We have, can I use an MDM collaborating? We have Google and Microsoft collaborating. It reminds me of the end of Rocky four. Anybody ever seen Rocky four? If I can change and use can change, we all can change. That's my, that's my Rocky. I'm I'm impressed you made it that far through the series. I thought that like, by the time you get to four, you know, like uh, whatever the fast and the furious four was, you know, right. I didn't make, I did not make it that far through fast and furious, but Rocky, I definitely did probably due to my age. And I will say that Rocky four, um, has probably more. What's the word? What's the word when they, when there's music, a montage, it has, it has more <laughs> montage per capita than probably any movie in, in history. So amazing. I mean, they kind of like their montage is iconic. Yes. And they just decided to go all montage for Rocky four. I mean, a huge portion of that movie is montage. So I've never but, seen any Rocky, but now I just want to see Rocky four. <laughs> I highly recommend it, especially the end. Cause then you can judge my, uh, impersonation there and tell me how good it was. <laughs> Moving on, Firefox DevTools as inactive CSS overlay. This is pretty cool. I just saw this today. And it's a new feature in Firefox DevTools that we will link in, in the show notes because you want to get the image. Uh, they provide an image in the tweet. Click through the link to see the tweet there where um, 
in the CSS pane on the you know, where it shows what CSS is applied to the particular element that you have in focus in your dev tools, they will now show you CSS that you have applied but isn't doing anything. So it's inactive CSS. And the best part is they'll actually tell you why. And this example is awesome. So they have like a flex grow applied to it. And it says flex grow has no effect on this element since it's not a flex item. So they've applied flex grow, but they forgot to put flex whatever, display flex. And so it's just like, hey, this isn't doing anything. So it's basically worthless code at this point. Go ahead and go fix that. Such a cool, like it seems like almost like, you know, when things are obvious in retrospect, you're like, of course we've always wanted this. I just didn't think of it. Am I the only one that's that excited about this feature or is this pretty cool? I think it's cool. I mean, then it prevents us from having to do like color red, <laughs> various things to see. If, exactly. If the CSS, it's such a great feature because there are lots of times where you're debugging CSS and you don't know how things are working or if things are working. And then you end up with a lot of redundant CSS. Sometimes you end up with code bases that have like duplicates of multiple things. Because like earlier you wrote like, I don't know, border, one pixel solid black. And then later you wrote like one pixel solid dot or something else. That's actually probably not what people write because that's very obvious. That's like, <laughs> like position. Masochists relative. might write yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like I think position, display, things like that are, are common properties that tend to be repeated. I actually just realized I was right, right before this call, I was writing some CSS and I wrote content for two twice for like a pseudo property a pseudo element was really dumb had i used the firefox dev tools it would have told me i don't know actually does it tell you about redundancy i don't know my level of knowledge is is i'm at tweet levels of knowledge at this point i saw the tweet and then i clicked the link (laughs) and that's where i'm sitting i haven't used it yet i'm just gotta i just saw this today and threw it in our notes um the other thing speaking of collaboration just to stay on theme now is that the Chrome DevTools Twitter account tweeted this or re- quote tweeted it and said something. Congratulations, Firefox DevTools. Great feature. Yeah, very good. Thank you for yeah. pointing that in. So yeah, they're congratulating. They're seeing this. And really, this is like the healthy competition collaboration that's happening when we have multiple teams working on things to level up everybody and give everybody ideas. Like this idea should spread to Chrome. And that's the top reply to the tweet from the Firefox Dev Tools. Hey, Chrome, you need this feature as soon as you can. And it's like, yeah, good ideas should propagate. So that's cool. So I came across this not because I follow Chrome Dev Tools or Firefox Dev Tools on Twitter, but because I follow Horse.js. <laughs> <laughs> the tweet was, congratulations, Firefox Dev Tools, great. And so then uh, I also follow Horseplain, which explains which tweet that was coming from. And it was this one. And uh, I don't know if it was just because of the way I came to it that I just read this as like a snarky thing from Chrome DevTools. Great feature, whatever. But it's probably not. <laughs> yeah, Adam Adam Argyle, who is um, listening to our stream, says they feel like the value was telling us why, not just that it's unused. And I think that's the valuable thing. And I, I agree with Divya about just catching you out on, especially things like display or positioning or... Um, like Flexbox is the perfect example. That's why they had a screenshot of that. And I had an example of this last week where I was, you know, introduced to a brand new patent library, brand new components that I've never seen before that are very much plug and play so that we can create a consistent, you know, user interface. But if you want to put a couple of overrides on it, just for convenience, you know, there, there's a way to do that. 
But at the same time, you're not always privy to exactly every single property that's been applied to those components just because they are like a basically copy paste, you know, plug and play set of um, React components. And so this would have been so helpful to me last week if I'd known about it because, you know, I was sitting in the dev tools looking at the CSS and saying like, why is my stuff not overriding this correctly? And I had to basically pick apart every single little property to see, oh, well, is my top property not working because, you know, it has the default, you know, um, positioning attribute applied to it and things like that. So this is actually a lifesaver. The more we start compartmentalizing like reusable components, I think, especially. I think it's also interesting to consider, and this is, I don't have the answer to this, but how that would work with like CSS and JS and CSS modules and things like that. Because a lot of the times, whenever you write CSS in a different style sheet, something that's like, you know, more specific will override it. And so this particular feature talks about like specific properties that are not being applied properly and and gives you suggestions on what to do. And it would be cool if it did like, hey, there's another thing that's also overriding the thing that you're trying to do. Mm. Um, Because that tends to happen, right? You're like, oh, I'm trying. I was working on ViewPress recently and I was running into this issue where we would create components, but then there was like, single file component that was essentially that CSS overrides any other style sheet because that is super specific because it gets a hash value. Very annoying, very frustrating because then you're like, I mean, you come to the point of almost wanting to do like bang important just to like <laughs> add the style. <laughs> Which like goes against writing pro- CSS properly in the first place. Yeah, this reminds me of when you're playing Pokemon and you have like, you know, an electric Pokemon versus a water Pokemon and you try like an attack, maybe the water Pokemon tries something against electric and it's like, it wasn't very effective. <laughs> you know, mm. but this actually like goes forward and it actually explains why rather than just, yeah, that flopped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It is so easy to get started with Linode. Servers start at just five bucks a month. We host changelog on Linode cloud servers and we love it. We get great 24 seven support. Zeus like powers with native SSDs, a super fast 40 gigabit per second network and incredibly fast CPUs for processing. And we trust Linode because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com changelog. We learn things as developers. Hopefully we're all moving, advancing, leveling up, learning stuff. Everybody knows that you learn things every day, hopefully. And Today I Learned is a new segment we're trying called Today I Learned, in which we share things that we've learned today or recently, because that would be a tall order, not even halfway through the day. Anyways, let's talk about things that we've learned recently. I'll go first to set the stage. I learned just recently, wasn't today, but very recently that the get user media function on the navigator object inside your local browser, especially if that browser happens to be Safari, does not work anymore. And I learned that because my code that was in production stopped working. (laughs) And I should have known that a long time ago because MDN tells you it's been deprecated for a long time, y'all. I mean, I don't know how long, but it's probably been a couple of years deprecated. 
It's been a long time. Like that's been popping up in your console for quite a while too. I think that at least the Chrome DevTools would bring up that little yellow warning saying, by the way, you should really start using this soon. Yes. Uh, a little bit to my defense, this is code that has been in production for a while and is not actively maintained in terms of I'm not adding things to it. And so I'm not like in that code on a day-to-day basis. It's like it's in production. Basically, I should say that the Git user media API is used to get access to webcams or audio streams inside of the browser. And so we have a, I have a client application that uses the webcam in order to scan some QR codes to do check-ins and outs of books into uh, school classes. And so it's just kind of been out there in production. I haven't been actively like making changes um, until the day that it broke. So the funny thing is, is that the report back was this no longer works. Actually, it wasn't this no longer works. It was, we've tried to, so basically the way this works is this school program, I tell, uh, we basically just say you should use Chrome, like, because it's that kind of an app where we can just say, use the latest Chrome, everything will be fine. Well, they wanted to start working on some classrooms that only have iPads. And can we get this working on iPads? And I was like, well, it's pretty much should. Safari has had access to the webcam for a while now in iOS, so it should work just fine. And they went out and tried different versions of Safari, mobile Safari 12 point, on iOS 12.1, 12.4. The funny thing is that it like stopped working and then it started working on 12.1.4 or something like this, weird. And then it stopped again. So the request back from the client was, should we have an iPad app? Because we want to be able to do this on iPads, but we can't do it in mobile Safari because it isn't a thing. And so then I went to the console and I was like, well, that's because this is no longer a thing. Anyways, long story short, I learned that you should not use navigator.getusermedia. You should use mediadevices.getusermedia because that's the new shiny way of doing it and has a promise-based API and is like the golden path forward. So I just swapped in there and got into the code, swapped it out. Everything started working again, and I said, see, we don't need an iPad app now. So if you're using the old one, you should make that switch. Do not ignore deprecations for years and years is the other long story short. So there you go. Nick, how about you? What did you learn lately? Oh, man. So kind of along the same vein of things that are deprecated that I didn't realize, uh, I was working on an app and testing it in uh, on iOS. And uh, I noticed that I accidentally double double tapped and it zoomed in. And I'm like, this is a responsive app. I don't want it to zoom. And so I was like, hey, I should add the the meta tag that prevents user zooming so you can't pinch to zoom or double tap and um i i mentioned that in our in the work slack and i was like i'm just gonna add this and i went to to add it and it was already there and i'm like a minute and i it was at that point that i realized that uh it actually no longer works because it is um, an accessibility nightmare uh so you can you can't prevent someone from zooming in if they want to on mobile devices with that that meta tag so um yeah that is something that I learned that I'm using outdated technology as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you, not alone. <laughs> when you said that you like we were trying to disable it, I didn't actually know that it stopped working as well. And I was like, in my head, I was like, but accessibility, no, why are you doing <laughs> <Yeah>. that? <laughs> so that makes me really happy. <laughs> well, I, I guess, I don't know. Like the app looks good. And I, I was assuming like if you had set your, you know, like on iOS, if you set your font size to be bigger, that would apply to Safari as well. Mm. Um, and so maybe you wouldn't need to zoom in. Uh, or I don't know. I'm, I'm not thinking deeply enough about accessibility issues on this 
particular case. So I know there's, there's several issues I'm overlooking, but yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't work and you can't stop someone, which is good for accessibility and it's okay for, for that. Anyway, the, the app still works fine. I can just not double tap or zoom out when I do. Yeah. To a degree, you have to give up, you have to have boundaries where you give up control and just be like, you know what? It, it's okay if the site fails because of some strange thing that the user did for their own mm. like purposes of, of being able to actually use your app. Good advice. Funny how accessibility is the first thing that you just toss out the window and you're like, you know what? I don't need this anymore. It was a nice to have, not a need to have. It's added to the backlog often. You're like, yeah, you should create accessibility. I mean, I'm guilty of that in an application we're working on now where it's like nice to have, but not post release. Right. That's the problem. It's a hard thing to sell a business use case or not use case, but business value. We know that the value is there. It's hard to argue for that in a successful manner because it's hard to see that value. Anyways, Suze, TIL, what'd you learn lately? Mine's actually accessibility related. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I had some time off recently and I was um, kind of trying to just do a little bit of sort of like TLC on a GitHub repository. And we, we actually were running automated accessibility tests for a while. And because I sort of wrote a lot of the base HTML, it was very semantic HTML, which most of the time means that it's very accessible by default. So when we installed the automated accessibility testing, everything basically passed and we'd already run it through um, Accessibility Insights, which is a like a browser extension that uses AxCore in the background. And AxCore is kind of the backbone of a lot of automated static analysis testing for accessibility. And it had already passed all of that. So we were like, cool, let's just turn on the test um, so that now we can actually start failing CI builds and things like that, right? And what we didn't realize was that the way that we had installed the automatic accessibility testing, we were using like AxCore on a Vue.js kind of like powered website, was it was actually just like, passing it when it wasn't actually looking at the HTML at all. Uh, <laughs> and so that's why things were passing. So I ended up just spending time repairing that and actually getting it to run. And then once I actually got it to run, I got a really super unexpected failure. And so what I learned was I used Jest Axe, which is kind of just like the Jest wrapper around Axe core test. Um, and so I used that and it failed on when you have like a form and you have like an input, like a text input, you know, for accessibility purposes, you should always have a label at um, a label tag that actually is is um, connected to the input to describe what it is. So if it's first name, for example, then the labels um, text content would be first name. You can do this in a couple of different ways to link the inputs together, just in case people don't know. So you can have a label tag and an input tag, and then you can basically put an ID attribute on the input tag. And then on the label tag, you have a for attribute and you just match that ID. And then that links them together so that when somebody is using a screen reader or tapping around through the website, it, they actually know what that input field is and what they need to enter, right? But there's another way you can do it, which is still valid, which is you can create your label tag and then you can actually nest the input inside the, the set of label tags. And that's what I was doing in the view app because it's sort of like considered, I don't know, like it seems like it's a more slightly more modern way to do it. And it was failing on that randomly. And I had no idea that Axe Core will fail you if you have it nested in there, even though it's a valid way to do it. So I still want to look into that. If I know this is a very oddly, extremely specific <laughs> uh, today I learned, but 
I had no idea that that would actually be a natural failure. So I wonder if that's just the defaults in X core or something, but I need to actually look into that more. That was like a quintessential TIL right there. Good job. Divya, now that Seuss has given the quintessential one, <laughs> try following that. Just kidding. But it is your turn. <laughs> Yeah, so I've been reading a lot on on authentication and authorization, and there's like various protocols. So OAuth two is like the standard at this point. It's been for like I'm almost a decade, um, and so there's various like specificities around OAuth and the standard, and like people talk about it. And of course, it changes for each platform. So like the web has like their version of OAuth, and then if you use like a mobile app. It has like a different slight variation for OAuth because there's no way to like securely store a client secret um, without exposing it. So there's like specific tweaks to it. And so they call that, I think the mobile one is called like proof key for code exchange. And so I was reading that and then I was like, oh, okay, PKCE. And then I was listening to like a podcast of someone and someone called it Pixie. I was very confused because I was like, what's Pixie? I've never heard it. And then I just kept Googling Pixie and Pixie JS kept coming up. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I don't understand. And then it just like took a while for me to put those two things together to understand like, okay, this person was talking about mobile auth and refers to it as Pixie. So I think from, <laughs> I can deduce that this is what they're talking about. So that was kind of, it's like very specific. It feels weird because like, in a way, me knowing it's called Pixie is like not relevant at all. Just because like I can still do my thing. I can still use it. I can still do my thing. Yeah. I, I don't need to know how it's said. It's like saying GIF versus GIF. Like it, you can say it however you want, but it's still. Well, not really though. Well. <laughs> Just kidding. Well then. <laughs> I was like, well, but there is a correct way. And it's, it, it rhymes with GIF. Uh I w- it does sp- strike a chord and speaks to something that happens a lot with us as developers is that we read things more than we hear them and we type them more than we say them. And so oftentimes, and this is an experience as a podcaster that I've run into time and time again, is that we don't actually know how stuff is pronounced a lot of the times or we all just kind of like make up our own, like you just kind of read it and sound it out. And then when you're finally saying it aloud to somebody for the first time, you're like, get all uh, self-conscious. Like, am I saying this correctly? Because it sounds strange. So, Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's definitely noteworthy yeah it also just like i mean sometimes it makes makes me self-conscious when i say something wrongly and then i realize everyone's been saying it a completely different way (laughs) and like it's a no it's almost like a known that that's how you say it and then i've just been saying it this weird way (laughs) that happened to me when i moved to the u.s from australia like we actually say specific technical words totally differently so you know instead of caching data uh we say caching data and people mm. literally thought I was speaking a different technical language because of these random things where, it, where they're just like, we have no idea what you're saying right now. And then I didn't know what they were saying. And I guess this was like kind of before the big explosion of YouTube videos and people actually being able to hear how other people say technical terms in different accents as well. Yeah. So I felt very stupid for a long time. <laughs> or you think you feel very smart because like you said something and we're all like, what is she talking about? It must be really, really good. <laughs> No. I would just go along with it. <laughs> yeah, just nod and smile and nod. Smile and nod. Yes, <laughs> caching. I think you try, I mean, I often should just like, if I'm in the position of being a listener, I usually try to get context clues to understand what you're trying to say. But I find that sometimes I come across as really rude because like, I'll repeat the word. <laughs> like, 
Just like if you like just blah, 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 caching, blah 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 blah. And then I'll be like, oh caching. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. But it's more just me thinking out loud, like, yeah. oh, okay. No, it's totally true. I once said like I once said something like, you know, we could just pass the JSON. And they're like, where are we passing it to? I'm like, no, you you pass it. And they're like, oh, yeah. yeah, like where? Like we're not talking about a function or like an yeah. argument. And and then I realized, and I said it in the American accent, I was like, no, I meant parsing. And they were like, oh, okay. So there are certain words now that I say in an American accent, like parsing, um, just because it's too hard to communicate otherwise. Yeah. In a non-technical, I mean, like going down this like rabbit hole of words, uh, one of the confusing words that I tend to use is lift. So like if I'm meeting someone in a lobby of a building, I'll be like, oh, I'm in a lift. And they'll be like, what? We, we, we said we'll meet in the lobby. Why are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally do exactly the same thing. I have to say elevator or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not your fault because the company stole the, the term. Right? I mean, I've been trying to be like amongst friends. Be like, can we just call it like life? Like life. Life. <laughs> Rideshare. I think I just default to rideshare now. Yeah. So a long time ago, we were interviewing the creator of the SQL ITEL. I won't say the name yet because it's part of the story. You know, that database, the embedded database. And I asked him because there's all this like, is it, is it SQLite? Is it SQLite? Uh, how do you pronounce it? So I kind of gave him those two examples. And they were both wrong. And nobody knows how to pronounce it the correct way. But it's actually like meteorite. So it's like SQLite. I can't even do it now. He went through this deep explanation of how to say it. And I was like, dude, I hate to break it to you, but no one's saying it that way. Like we have these two that we argue about and you're over here on this third path, just completely out there in the wild by yourself. Yeah. I always think of that as a beer, you know, like cause light, sequel light. Yeah. Sequel light. No, it's like SQLite. That's how, you, that's how he says it. SQLite or something. I don't know. Weird. SQLite. Um, but anyway, uh, that's like a trajectory that we went on. But the other thing that's really cool that I learned recently, it wasn't today specifically, so not very accurate for today, maybe this week. But I learned that you can actually, so for GitHub searches, it always annoyed me because whenever you search for labels, it will only be inclusive. And I never knew how to do an exclusive search. And I realized you just put a minus in front of it. You do like minus label, and then it gives you like those that, issues that are not that label yes that's awesome, so man. handy it feels like it took me it, i don't know i feel like everyone knew about this <laughs> it just recently was like oh i don't think they did i think there's there's some of us that are all these things these little tips and things you learn like there are people that know that and there's a whole bunch of them that don't so let me just say if you're out there listening and you just learned that here from divya hit her up on twitter was it short div uh tweet at divya say i didn't know that thanks for sharing it This episode is brought to you by cross-browser testing of SmartBear, the innovator behind the tools that make it easier for you to create better software faster. If you're building a website and don't know how it's going to render across different browsers or even mobile devices, you'll want to give this tool a shot. It's the only all-in-one testing platform that lets you run automated, visual, and manual UI tests across thousands of real desktop and mobile browsers. Make sure every experience is perfect 
perfect for everyone who uses your site and it's easy and completely free to try. Check it out at crossbrowsertesting.com slash changelog. Again, crossbrowsertesting.com slash changelog. finish off today's show with things that we are excited about so we call this i'm excited about x and in parentheses we say where x is literally anything so it doesn't have to be javascript or web related it doesn't have to be developer related it could be anything it could even be an apple harvest but i forecast let's start with somebody else divya what are you excited about <laughs> so I'll, i guess i can start with like something that's not technical and then move to something that's more technical i'm excited to move that'll be great i'm like currently in temporary a temporary sublet situation where so to like just somewhere else in in the city oh okay <laughs> we're so trying to figure that out you're in chicago correct yeah and so you move into a new place in chicago yeah yeah just trying to find something long term or whatever but you moved there from boston so there was a recent I move know. and now there's another move yeah i mean it's a lot of moves i feel like that's the story of my life i feel like Sue's might understand i totally get this <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I'm excited about that. But I'm also excited about, as I was mentioning earlier, I've been reading a lot about authentication just because it's something that I realize I don't know a lot about. And it's something that I'm trying to deepen my knowledge of. Um, and I came across this like new standard that's or this new protocol or a proposal essentially to uh, replace OAuth 2. So OAuth 2 has a, is great and people have used it for a long time, but there are issues with it. For example, with OAuth standards, oftentimes you have to give a lot of information to the authorization server on initial request, which is, you know, some people consider that a bit scary because then an attacker can intercept that and get a bunch of your information, which is not very good. And so um, there's a new protocol called XYZ because I think they couldn't figure out a name for it. So they just called it XYZ. In the last one. <laughs> Um, and XYZ is essentially a transactional model. So the authorization server can essentially declare what, what it wants from whom. Um, and so there's the ability, I, I don't know like too much about it, but I do know that you don't have to give that user information up front because with regular OAuth, you have to be like, this is the client ID, the user, and, and like all this extra information, including the scope that you want and the permissions, whatever, whatever. And so OAuth XYZ is more an intent-based system. And so along the way, you're not, revealing a lot of information and passing along a lot of information, which means that an attacker can't intercept, or if they do intercept, they won't be getting a lot out of it. So it's a bit, it's different. It's a slightly different way of doing it. I believe this protocol is not super compatible with OAuth 2, which is like expected because usually whenever a standard changes, it's not compatible with the previous one, which happened with OAuth 2 and OAuth 1. Um, so I think it's like an ongoing proposal and I'm trying to like understand all there is to know about it just because I'm like, what's happening? And this thing is happening. Um, and I feel like the authorization and authentication world feels like a completely different like thing in and of itself, like very separate from my web world, even though it's kind of related. Um, and so it's, it's kind of interesting to, to switch gears and think about something in a completely different way. 
and kind of force myself to be outside of my comfort zone and then learn something along the way and not be afraid of that. Yeah. Well, you may not know this, but it's actually pronounced. (laughs) 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 Who's next? Suze. That was really good, Jared. Yeah. Uh, I broke the show. I'm going to be a total cliche as usual. And this is JavaScript hardware related. I'm very excited for the rebirth of the serial API, but for reals this time, for reals, at least in Chrome. <laughs> but the, the history of this API is just that it was an experimental API that was only allowed to be accessed within either Chrome extensions or Chrome apps. It then got removed from Chrome extensions uh, and was only available on Chrome OS within Chrome apps. And that was a bit of a downer, right? Because that's just like such a small surface area, you know, to be able to use it in. And so it's now like an official proper spec rather than just an experimental API. And it is actually already in Chrome today. Um, It's not a complete implementation, but it's starting to get there. Just so that people know what that means. It means things like you can plug an Arduino in and start basically reading any kind of data that it's sending via the serial port over to the browser. So instead of having to have these kind of like web sockets because you're reading it from a Node.js program instead, and then you have to pass that along to the actual browser, which is, you know, running your front end, you can just do it all directly in the browser now. And it actually has better security in that there has to be a user gesture that actually initiates the connection to the actual device itself and things like that. So I'm pretty excited because it means that I can port a bunch of my libraries to the browser and and have them actually work correctly. And so just an example, of this is if you go to create.arduino.cc, if you use that on a Chromebook right now, you can basically write code in the browser with their built-in like browser editor, and you can then compile and flash the code over to your Arduino um, in order to kind of test out your program all in the browser. So you don't have to like download the, you know, 100 megabyte large, you know, Java fork of the, um, you know, processing ID and things like that, you can just get started in a browser, which is like incredibly enabling. And so having that come to other platforms now, like on Windows and Mac OS, right now only in Chrome, but we really, really hope to see other browsers implement this soon. It's really exciting because it just means that getting started with this stuff is a lot easier and you don't have to have a super powerful computer to get started either. So I'm, I'm just really excited about that. Awesome. Nick, what are you excited about? Ooh, I am excited about Z Shell. Uh, I've been learning a lot about it. Uh, I've used it for years, and uh, I don't use Oh My ZSH because I wanted to learn everything that's happening in my shell. And uh, I did to an extent, but I have been going through and learning a lot more about some of the, the different features of Z Shell and the difference between like just writing things as scripts versus auto-loading things as functions and just updating my dot files a lot with different Z shell goodness. And uh, I'm really enjoying doing that on a non-tech side. I have been the victim of the YouTube AP or the, the YouTube algorithm. And it got me started watching some videos on old doom, like the original doom, uh, which was really cool and fun to play when I was a kid. And I found those on uh, the Nintendo switch store. So both mm. Doom and Doom 2, and I have been playing those and reliving my, my childhood. I'm not much of a gamer, uh, but those were definitely fun when I was a kid, and awesome. uh, they, they're fun now. <laughs> you got something else on that list. You want to say that one? 
Yeah. Uh, I'm another thing I'm really excited for is uh, TypeScript Conf, which is happening next week or next month in uh, Seattle. And I'm going to be co emceeing that with Cassidy Williams. So I'm really excited to, nice. uh, to awesome. do that. And it'll be a lot of fun and a lot of terrible jokes. You should come hang out too, Nick. Yeah. You know yeah, that? definitely. Yeah. When you come to Seattle, hit me up for sure. So I will close this out here really quickly with something completely non-technical. And no, this is not referring to Apple releases. There <laughs> is that time of year here uh, in Nebraska where we are reaching harvest time. And uh, one thing that has been, uh, we've been anticipating here at the Santo household for a few years now is apple harvest. So. About four years ago, we moved out to a small acreage uh, in rural Nebraska outside of Omaha, about eight and a half acres, and we quickly planted 25 fruit trees on our land, and so those are about three years old now. So for the first time ever, we we're actually going to have some apples, which is incredibly satisfying because you got to hunker down and wait. You know, you just can't really speed that process up. They take a few years to mature, and we've been tending to the, the apple trees and maintaining and keeping them alive and pruning them and doing all the work for a couple of years now, but we've never had any apples. Well, for the first time, we have some apples this year. We've already harvested a few because one of our varieties uh, matures early in the season. We had lots of fun making apple pies and eating our own apples. It's just an incredibly satisfying experience, and the kids are really enjoying that and learning all about how it works. So pretty cool. This will be our first year where we get, we're not going to have a full uh, load, but next year we'll probably have a whole bunch of apples and won't know what to, what to do with them. <laughs> right now it's like the perfect size. Um, but we're excited to have, maybe have a harvest party and let a lot of people come over and just come down and pick apples, take them home with them and nice. maybe eventually sell a few too. What kind of apples are they? So we have four different varieties. Um, there's uh, two reds and two yellows. So they're like golden delicious if you remember, if you know those types. And there's one called Scarlet Crush, which is pretty much like a Honeycrisp. Mm. And it tastes just like a Honeycrisp is my favorite. I love Honeycrisp. Um, they're my favorite too. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And then there's one called Lodi. And they're like, they're the ones that actually ripened in July. They're a bright green, kind of a tart apple, um, which is great for baking. You can eat them, but you got to like tart apples. Some people like, I like sweet apples more than tart apples myself. Mm. But some people really like those. And then we have two pear trees, two peach trees, an apricot tree, and a cherry tree. Wow. Um, so those, none of those are active. We actually got two pears, not two pear trees. We actually had two pears this year. So next year we'll get some pears. But yeah, it's just, it's a, I love, I, I didn't realize this about myself, but I love taking care of plants and trees and like doing that kind of stuff. It's like completely different than standing in front of a computer and typing, you know, like go out and touch the world, you know? That is so cool. When are we going to IOTify these? You know, I was going to ask. <laughs> That's a good question. We should uh, take that up soon. I don't know what, I, what we would do with them. Give me an idea. What would IOT in them look like? Mm, smart irrigation so you save water. Ooh, I like that. I, already, I did buy a drone so I can go down and check on them without walking down there. But that's still, I, I drive the drone down and I, look, I just look at it. If it could actually just model them itself, I'd appreciate that. You could design something to count the apples on the tree or something from the drone footage. That would be fun. I already designed those. They're like some children. TensorFlow thing yeah. that identifies that it's an apple. <laughs> that would be cool. Yeah, I, I, gotta, I gotta be careful not to do too much automated work because I, I did, I, we're doing this so that my kids have things to do. You know, mm -hmm. I gotta put them to work a little bit 
teach them the value of labor and you know all that. So if I just automate it all, my kids will just be watching. TV yeah, totally. And, I so. only I only automate the watering of my plants when I'm away. When I come back, I disconnect all of it because like I yeah. want the pride of having taken care of it. That's the whole point. You know, it's not just because they're pretty to look at. I get it. Just get your kids to automate it. Boom. The grand idea. Get the kids to automate it. Yeah, I got to teach them how to do that. They're and not going to do that because they won't get like allowance once they've That's automated right. it. They'll automate themselves out of their allowance. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, they'll just bring their iPad down to, to the trees and sit there while the automation happens. <laughs> that might be worth it. The problem with that is I'd have to teach them how to automate it and I don't know how. So I'd be a really bad teacher. It's like that old Mitch Hedberg joke. He said, I taught myself how to play the guitar but I didn't know how to play the guitar. <laughs> so I was a really bad teacher. You know, that's how I feel a lot of, a lot of this stuff. And you have Suze come teach that, uh, me how to teach them how to IOT these things up. All right, that's our show, y'all. Thanks for sticking with us. I hope you enjoyed it. Let us know. All right, us. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. See you next week. All right, thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We're just an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things around here at Changelaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash Changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at Changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thank you.